people thought, you know, these young kids off the boat, they're way too arrogant. They don't know anything. They don't know what they're doing. They're a bunch of 20-somethings. Why do they think that they can change the immigration law? And looking back now, I think in some ways we were not arrogant enough. This is Centerpiece NY with Paul Finnegan, your presenter and producer. Centerpiece NY is a podcast that traces the lives of people who have put down some serious roots in the Irish community in New York. Our centerpiece for this episode is Sean Benson, a County Kildare native who exemplifies a generation of Irish youth that came of age in the 1980s. You might even call them Ireland's greatest generation. The 1980s. You could say the whole world changed, and you'd be right. On one end of it, there was a thing called the Soviet Union, and on the other end, there wasn't. Gone, just like that, and we thought we were stuck with it forever. Not to worry, we soon got other, newer world orders, and huge events to consider. Things like Iraq 1, the Internet, and later, 9-11, Afghanistan, Islam, and then Iraq again, only worse, and then a financial crisis. And now things like Brexit, and Trump, and wokeness to injustices among us, and that virus. There's no end to changes, to shake-ups, good and bad, and that's how we seem to want it. Meanwhile, Little Ireland has been doing its shake-up thing, and that thing, you could say, really got going in the 1980s. Give or take a year or two, Ireland's 80s was bookended, going in by a stifling, often unchristian Catholic Church in the Republic, and a nasty, hopeless war to the north, a conflict as much cancelled from conversation at the dinner table in the Republic as the red-blue partition is taboo at Thanksgiving in the US today. By the time Ireland got to the other bookend on the shelf of this period, a theocracy was on the run, and the seeds for a joyful peace with a border unplugged had been planted, a peace which soon flourished and thankfully survives to this day, despite taking some blows of late. In addition, there was Riverdance. There was a rock band from Dublin that ruled the world, and the Republic of Ireland reached the quarterfinals of the World Cup in Italy, briefly making them one of the top eight teams in the world in, for goodness sake, soccer, that foreignest of foreign games. Timote against Bonner. Everything had been turned bon aus kion, upside down, in a good way. Well, almost everything. At the end of 1989, there was a small matter of 50,000 undocumented young Irish people living in the United States. When everything else was trending so well, how did that happen? A familiar story, the economy. 
the warning signs were there. Rising unemployment, and then... Total collapse. A generation that had been raised to expect that leaving would be a choice started heading to the airports in droves. The last time this kind of exodus occurred was the 1950s. But this time around, two things were different. First, the United States, where the bulk of these emigres wound up at some point in those years, was no longer an open door to young, single Irish travellers. The impact of huge structural changes in US immigration law all the way back in 1965 was finally hitting the Irish hard. Being young and Irish in America, invariably meant being an undocumented immigrant. The other thing was education. For this generation of Irish, if they didn't have a third level degree, and so many did, the chances were they had a truly world-class secondary education. With education comes confidence. This generation was a generation of confidence. They were not quick to accept their lot. By the end of the decade, this generation had found its voice, in America, naturally, and because the young are always the future, a nation had found its voice, and they have something to show for it. These upstarts changed American law and solved the problem of the 50,000. They would legalize the Irish. In this episode of Centerpiece NY, we'll take a look at that generation through the lens of Sean Benson, one of those new Irish as they were known, and through the lens of that age-old Irish magnet, New York. Let's start with understanding what brought Sean to America. I graduated in 1983, and of course the economy in Ireland was was not that great at that time. And I got a I got a couple of jobs, but really nothing was really working out for me. And then I just decided, okay, I'm just going to take the boat and come to America because I always had sort of a, a view that America was very welcoming, and I figured I could just try my chances here and um, let's see what happens. So I made a decision. So I graduated in 1983, but then in 1985, I came over. Soon, however, limitations became apparent. I was undocumented like everybody else. There were so many people living in Woodside, so of course I was in Woodside. And there was a lot of people there. Everybody was undocumented. Everybody was working seven days a week. Nobody seemed to mind that they were undocumented. But then, you know, you started hearing stories about people not having good interactions with other people and just I couldn't believe that everybody was sort of living on the, you know, on the underground and they didn't want people to know anything. And uh, so I, I just was kind of surprised about that, you know, to see it. And I just felt that's not the way it should be. We should be able to live in the open, you know, and, and just live our lives and get visas. But of course, there was nothing on offer at the time. There was an amnesty program uh, that came up in 1986, uh, Ronald Reagan. But you had to have been in the country, I think, four years earlier. And so even though a lot of people got visas, a lot of green cards from that amnesty, the big exodus from Ireland really only began after that program was over. So you had a lot of Irish here who were stranded and they needed some sort of a solution. And so 
you know, that's where, you know, the next phase for me began. And in short order, he found the team he wanted to work with. I read an, an article in the Irish Echo about a meeting that had been held with the Irish immigration reform movement. I think it was in May of 1987. And I thought, boom, that's the group that I want to be part of. I went down to the Cork Club and started to get involved. It's not surprising that the fire that was the Irish immigration reform movement, the IRM, was originally kindled among people from County Cork, a place deservedly known as Ireland's rebel county. If you're from Kildare, I mean, I'm not saying that I had a sheltered life, but, you know, Cork people were a whole different ball of wax. And they're, and they're very much all about Cork. And Cork people are very, very proud of being from Cork. You know, so it was a bit of a cultural adventure for me. But, you know, they accepted me and, you know, I was pulling my weight and got involved with the double IRM and became one of the leaders. If you can explain what you are doing in just three words, it's half the battle. One of Sean's earliest and most powerful contributions to the group was coining the phrase, legalize the Irish. It's almost like man bites dog. So you have to give people a headline that looks sort of silly. And that way it, it attracts the attention. So the immediate reaction was, what, what do you mean legalize the Irish? The Irish are legal. And so it would prompt the question for us. So it did a good job of sort of catching attention. And of course, the cameras and the, the journalists liked that slogan because it was just three words. It was effective and it made the story interesting. You know, why are the Irish undocumented? And so then, you know, we had lots of journalists writing stories about undocumented Irish. It all seemed so easy at the time to get media attention. Journalists would ask us, well, how many undocumented Irish are in the country? And we'd say, well, we don't know. It could be 50,000. It could be 25,000. You know, it could be more. And then we'd read the news or, or watch the TV later that night, and the journalist would come out in a very dramatic, there are 25,000 undocumented Irish today living in Woodside. Journalists tend to exaggerate a little bit just to make their story more dramatic. And I do remember that the Irish government was a little upset with us because they felt that we were exaggerating the numbers of undocumented Irish. But the reality was that the journalists wanted to make the story bigger so that it sounded more dramatic. You know, we just went along with it as it happened. From the arrival of hordes of undesirable, famished, Roman Catholic Irish on the shores of a Protestant nativist country in the middle of the 19th century to the inauguration of John F. Kennedy, the Irish surely and deliberately taught America how to use its own democracy. It goes without saying that this lesson may need to be retaught in our current times. But in the late 80s, American democracy was rock solid and ready-made for a few smart Irish kids to seize the moment and work it to their benefit. Let's have Sean walk us through the magic of Democracy 101. Well, truly the stars were aligned for the Irish immigration reform movement in the late 80s because, and we only really figured this out as we went along, but you only needed to influence about six or seven people in Congress in order to get what you needed done. In our case, we needed the chairman of the relevant committee, the judiciary or the immigration subcommittees, and then the, the people who can move the legislation through the process and then agree to schedule not just hearings, but then a vote on the floor. And we were very fortunate that 
On the Senate side, obviously, we had Senator Kennedy and Alan Simpson, who was a good friend of the Irish. And then on the House side, we had Chuck Schumer, who was then a congressman, but he was on the Immigration Committee. And Chuck Schumer was a very ambitious politician, and he knew that he wanted to do something for the Irish, and he was very receptive to our requests to put in language in the bill that would help the Irish. So we were fortunate that Congressman Schumer was in place. We also had Bruce Morrison, who was the chair of the the relevant immigration committee. And some people may be familiar with him because they often talk about the Morrison visas as the visas that were created as part of the Immigration Act. And certainly he was very, very important because he was shepherding the bill through the floor. Again, Bruce Morrison was a politician who was looking to run for governor. And so he knew that in Connecticut, he needed to have the support of Irish Americans. And he felt that by doing this, this thing for the Irish, it would help him politically as well. We also had in other committees, and this may be a little arcane, but there's something called the Rules Committee in Congress. And we had a congressman, Joe Moakley from Massachusetts, who was terribly influential and very, very sympathetic. And You know, we didn't really know that the Rules Committee, how important it was, but yet they make the rules and they make the rules on when bills come up and they define whether people can make amendments to a bill when it comes to the floor. So long story short, the stars really were aligned in the sense that the key people who could help us were very, very sympathetic to us and they were representing districts where there was a large Irish-American population. And there's other folks as well. There's Senator Simon from Chicago, and then there was others out in San Francisco as well. And then it was just a question of putting enough pressure on those individuals to coax them along and and ensure that the, the process moved along. By the time 1990 rolled around, the IIRM was a nationwide grassroots organization of volunteer activists whose only motivation was a sense of community and heritage, and whose only reward was a job well done. What exactly was the remarkable solution they secured for their fellow Irish men and Irish women in the U.S. Immigration Act of 1990, these so-called Morrison visas? There was a special provision in that act that allowed people from Ireland to apply on a priority basis for a lottery program. And so it ended up that some 16,000 green cards a year were awarded to people just from Ireland over a three-year period. That really took care of the situation for the Irish. You know, some people ask the question, well, is it fair that the Irish got a special deal? And I would say absolutely it was fair, and we had absolutely nothing to apologize for. We completely deserved the program that we got. But in fact, we really pulled our weight without the Irish being involved in that bill. I don't know if it would have crossed the finish line. I don't know if there would have been enough enthusiasm and energy. So, of course, the Irish immigration reform movement and you know, other Irish Americans that we connected with deserve credit. But without that, I don't know if that bill would have become law. And I think that's really the astounding achievement of that young organization. People thought, you know, these young kids off the boat, they're way too arrogant. They don't know anything. They don't know what they're doing. They're a bunch of 20-somethings. Why do they think that they can change the immigration law? And looking back now, I think in some ways we were not arrogant enough. 
in the sense that we had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and certainly the Irish immigration reform movement did achieve important things, not just in helping the Irish, but in helping many other people with the passage of that bill. But we could also have done even much more. And I think one of the regrets that I have personally is that we didn't push to have a a permanent set-aside for a small number of visas for, for the Irish. And you know what? People say, why a set-aside for the Irish? Well, if in the course of doing this, we help a lot of other people, then I would say, you know, having a small number of visas set aside for the Irish, there's nothing wrong with it. There's all kinds of programs in the immigration law to help particular nationalities and people from different areas. Even to this day, I would say, sure, why not uh, have something special for the Irish? As long as we use the leverage and the clout and the political clout that we have to also help other people in the process. Let's now take a deeper dive into the double IRM. The Irish immigration reform movement, I think that's really just such a, I mean, it's hard to know what to say about it. It was really three people who were, you know, the real leaders at the outset who sort of started it up, you know, Sean Minahan, Pat Hurley, and and Mayor Driscoll. And they were all really, really interesting characters. Hurley and Minahan were about my age. They were in their early 20s when they started off, and May was just a little older. But looking back, we were all very young, and I think in particular, you know, Hurley and Minahan were two very charismatic characters in their own way, and they, they did a really great thing of bringing people along and showing a lot of leadership. And it's just impressive to think that you know, we were all so young, and maybe a bit naive, but we were absolutely committed. And it was just impressive watching, you know, their leadership. And it was unfortunate that at the end of it, there was obviously a large falling out between people. But I guess it was inevitable, given the intensity of the media coverage. And it did change some people's way they view themselves a little bit. But it it was just a great organization, as long as we were committed to the goal, and it was just a privilege to be part of it for me to do what I could to help. Here we must give honorable mention to the IRM's Frank Shorn, an attorney and educator, who crafted a key paragraph which included Northern Ireland with the Republic and separate to the UK in the Morrison Provision, a unique first in US law and foreign policy. Following are the voices of Sean Minahan, Pat Hurley, and Mayo Driscoll, courtesy of New York University Glucksman Ireland House, for the Oral History of Irish America project. We needed a name. There were various names cast around the place. Who was it going to be? Who was it wasn't going to be? And the word movement was, I think, commonly agreed upon that it had to be dynamic, it had to be active, and it had to be aggressive. Double IRM, Irish Immigration Reform, I think it just says what it was intended to do. So the name was very evocative, I think, very dynamic. Brian Donnelly had come up with this program with Donnelly visas about a year before that. How he had got that through was he had identified 36 countries, including Ireland, that, quote, had been adversely affected, unquote, by Ted Kennedy's uh, 1965 Immigration Act. He basically made the point, well, you know, these countries were adversely affected, we should do something for them. And that's how the Donnelly visas came through. And that basically was our premise after that. Well, you know, okay, we got 10,000 Donnelly visas or whatever, but that's not going to cure the problem. The precedent has now been set. 
these countries were adversely affected by the 65 Act. Now something has to be done for them. We were ignorant. None of us know anything. And if we ever knew what was involved, we would never have, we would never have gotten involved. We would never have taken on this huge project to say that, yeah, we're going to change the laws of the United States. Ultimately, the double IRM became a flat, decentralized network. So should we be erecting statues dedicated to any of the double IRM leaders after the 1990 Act became law? Well, by then it became larger than that. I think that there's a danger in sort of focusing on one or two people. I think the people that I mentioned were extraordinarily important at the beginning. But then you had people in Connecticut, Jim Larkin, for example, had a relationship with Bruce Morrison. We had people in Chicago who had relationships with Senator Simon. We had people in the state of Washington who had relationships with the speaker at the time. So all those people played an important role. I would credit more Minahan sort of organizing it and figuring out the sort of strategy. But it became as important to have all those people in those areas and what they did. So it really just took a lot of people. So, you know, it's okay to credit the leadership, but in many ways, it was a leadership organization in that everybody who joined and participated was standing up and saying, I'm going to do something. And so it was really great to see that in action and watching people not waiting for, hey, what should I do? But knowing exactly what they needed to do. You know, I kind of thought that Sean Menahan would get into politics. I thought he was a very naturally gifted politician, but he wisely decided to get into business instead, and he's probably making a lot more money. Sean Minahan later went back to live in Ireland, bringing with him American business know-how, one of the many returnees that helped build the modern, progressive, prosperous country that Ireland is today. I think it's very, very amazing that all these people around the country trusted the leadership in New York of a 24-year-old guy, you know, who had not done this before. But it says a lot about the, the competence and the charisma that he was able to, uh, to bring a lot of people together from all over the country and make a very successful lobbying effort. But I think it's a loss to public service if, you know, people like that decide not to get into public service. I think it's a pity because certainly he was a great leader and, you know, had the ability to influence people. He's a smart guy, but he was also very empathetic. And I thought he would have been just a great politician. The Immigration Act of 1990 was the last pro-immigration law passed in the United States and was primarily of benefit to hundreds of thousands of non-Irish immigrants. It increased the overall levels of legal immigration and introduced many new categories of immigration. Since 1990, major legislation has been largely anti-immigrant, punitive and restrictive. Sean believes the 1990 law would not have passed without the Irish, and to be more specific, without the double IRM. I think that the Immigration Act of 1990 would not have passed without the Irish. I'm pretty sure of that. Oh, yeah, I would say to you it was the double IRM. I remember reading in the Wall Street Journal in October, about a month before the bill was passed, there was an article with the headline, you know, immigration reform is dead for this year. And I remember reading and thinking, they don't know what I know (laughs) when they wrote that in that There was huge momentum at the time, even though things looked bad and we were running out of time in terms of the legislative session in order to get things done. But there was tremendous interest and tremendous momentum behind it. And of course, I don't think it would have happened without the double IRM. 
I'd be interested to hear what other people would say who were involved in lobbying at that time. We made friends with Cecilia Munoz from La Raza, who went to work for the Obama administration. And so she was representing her community. So we worked with her, and there was a lot of other organizations that we worked with. I think they really appreciated the involvement of the Irish in helping push this thing over the line. It takes more than one organization to do anything, but certainly I think the Irish punched above their weight in terms of what they actually got out of the bill versus what they put into it. Sean offers his take on the current state of the U.S. immigration system. Most of the visas that are issued in the United States are going to people with family connections. And therefore, if you don't have a family connection, it's very difficult to get a green card. And there's only a limited number of visas typically given for for employment. And I think that's a shame. Obviously, I'm not the first person to say it, but the immigration system today does not work in America's interest because it's not necessarily providing an opportunity for people to come here and contribute. But also, the immigration system was designed when the notion of immigration was a permanent thing. And I think what we see today is that there's much more movement of labor. And I think if America had a much more flexible system, that instead of giving visas to people, uh, permanent visas, giving more visas for people to come here on a temporary basis would be much better for America's interest. And obviously, I think it would be better for Ireland as well, for people from Ireland and from other countries who want to come here for a limited period of time, gain some skills, and then bring those skills and American values back to their, their home country. Somehow it's disappointing to me that the Irish community has not managed to get itself together, but it's also been a very, very tricky and very difficult environment for immigration legislation. We have the rise of nativism you know, over the past four years with the prior administration, and in that sort of an environment, there's a bigger risk for politicians to support programs that don't look like they're appealing to the base, and certainly it looks like the Republican base is not interested in having more immigrants come to America, and so... I can understand that Republicans in those districts are not going to support changes in immigration law, but you never know. The Emerald Isle Immigration Center, the EIIC, is a New York-based nonprofit organization that today directly serves over 150 nationalities from around the world and has gained huge respect in this city. It can trace its origins to key members of the IRM, who set it up as the social services wing of its work on behalf of the undocumented. Sean Benson played a pivotal and crucial role in its early years, serving as its very first executive director and implementing its original fundraising strategy. The Emerald Isle Immigration Center was something that I'm most proud of in terms of my contribution when I was part of the double IRM. I really focused on developing the social service side of the organization, and I realized that that could be a conduit to getting funding, as funding for lobbying purposes was a little tricky, but funding for social services would be easier, I felt. So I did pursue applications for funding with various entities, and I remember I met Walter McCaffrey. The late Walter McCaffrey was a council member representing Woodside. He hooked us up with city council and with 
Claire Shulman. And so we were off and running. We got some funding from Claire Shulman, the former Burr president of Queens. And that really put us on the map. It actually just gave us a steady supply of funding. And to this day, that money continues, which is great. And of course, the Emerald Isle has expanded now and is helping many more people than just Irish people. And I'm very proud that the centre continues today. And we've got a great new chairman, John Tully, who's taken over from Brian O'Dwyer, who has moved off the board after leading the organization for decades. And of course, Brian did a fantastic job. But John Tully is now the the chairman of the board. And uh, I'm very optimistic that Emerald Isle will continue in the future. And, you know, I think it's a great organization. One interesting thing about that organization, although, you know, I was the executive director, I was like, you know, really one of the founders of the organization. The role of women in, in the organization you know, thinking back on it and how important the women were in terms of the leadership that they provided. You know, I'm looking back at some of the names of the people that I worked with, Mayo Driscoll, Mary Nolan, Noreen O'Donoghue, the late Linda McKevitt, Joanne O'Connell, and Lisa Johnson. These were all fierce women. And I mean that in a positive way. These were really, really powerful and engaged and empowered people. And people talk today about you know, empowering people. These, these, these women were very empowered and they played a really, really magnificent role in legitimizing the organization in the Irish American community. And it was really more women doing the leadership and really doing the groundbreaking connections and building all of these things. This is really what allowed the organization to grow and develop and gain a reputation in the Irish community. It's important you know, to pay tribute to that. You know, this was many, many years ago. People talk about women in politics today. Well, we had a lot of really fantastic women and they played an extraordinarily important role in Emerald Isle. And they play a role today and continue to do that in the Irish American community here in New York. If you got a call from Joanne O'Connell asking to put an ad in the journal, you would be taking your life in your hands if you said no, trust me. Sean was young once too, and life wasn't all work and no play. With Gary Miley, we tinkered around with a radio show. Some of your listeners might remember Brendan Ward, who used to have a show on WNWK FM, 105.9 FM, on Saturday mornings. So Brendan gave Gary and myself the slot. Gary and I used to spin records, and we'd have the news from Ireland, just to give you an idea of how things have changed. We would actually get the newspapers and read out the news because we thought that that's how people would get the news. And like, you know, you think about that today and how ridiculous that sounds. You know, we would be reading the news, which would be four or five days old, by the way, you know. But it was a bit of fun and Gary was great. He was the presenter and he, I think, had more experience in doing radio than I had. I had no experience, but... I remember helping raise some money for the program. So he was good enough to bring me on as a co-presenter, as long as I kept bringing in the money. <laughs> you could buy a slot of, of time. And there was all different shows on there, people from India and Pakistan, and they'd talk about cricket and everything. And so it was, it was a great little radio station, and they had a powerful signal, which was important that you could hear that radio station quite far. I think that frequency has been taken over by another entity. Yeah, and you mentioned all the other peoples. They were all reading the newspapers as well for their That's country. right. 
<laughs> it sounds like the Middle Ages, you know, uh, when you think about it today. But again, what struck me was the number of people who were buying regional newspapers. They're more interested in what's going on in their county. And that's not something I really understood until I came over here, is how important the county allegiance was and is to this day. But it's also important, I think, to reach out to your county association because some people think it's maybe not cool or fashionable, but the county associations have always been a very, very important part of life for the Irish community in New York. And I hope that people will participate, not just in the St. Patrick's Day, you know, marching with their county, but these county associations are are really communities. And as you get older, you really realize the importance of these communities and how we can all help each other. So I encourage people, if you haven't, there's probably lots of county organizations out there and they're happy to welcome new members. In some ways, Sean's community work was a diversion from another road he'd aimed to travel. In time, as the echoes of the double IRM faded and the EIIC was on solid ground, he found his way back there. I went to college in Ireland, in Dublin, and, you know, I did a Bachelor of Business, and I'd always been interested in business. So even while I was working in the Emerald Isle Immigration Center, I applied to go to NYU Stern School Business for an MBA, and I got accepted in there, into the program. So I was really interested in, in doing that. And then I switched to a full-time finished the MBA full-time at NYU, and that's really what caused me to give up my position as executive director of the center. Right after I graduated, I was recruited you know, from business school to work in a, an insurance company. Insurance companies were not very modern at the time. Most people wouldn't think of them as modern today, but having had the experience at NYU and the internet in 1995 was just sort of starting to happen. It was easy to go into an organization after being in a learning organization to see the opportunities that could exist immediately to help transform the way that organization was working. And, you know, business transformation became a big thing for me. Through several decades, that's really what I focused on, is looking at how do you change and improve business operations. So I got focused in on, they call it like a Six Sigma program, which is sort of business improvement and that was really what I loved doing is like going in and trying to fix things. I, I've always felt like I was the plumber at work. You know, people would call me up and it's like, there's something leaking or there's something broken. And I say, no problem. Like, okay, let me, let me, let me diagnose it and see if I can fix it. So, you know, it's hard to describe what you do for a living, but I kind of thought of myself as the plumber. And I really enjoyed that because it was curious as to how things work. That was really what I, I focused on over my career at the insurance company. It was called Mutual of New York. And then that company was taken over by AXA, which is a big French company. So I stayed working there um, until quite recently. I was fortunate that I worked with people who were way smarter than me. I mean, when I started my business career, somebody said, you know, that's the key to success in business is to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. So I thought of myself as very lucky, but you know, sometimes when I go home, my lovely wife uh, reminds me that the universe of people smarter than me is actually quite large. So, you know, it, it's all relative. Recently retired, Sean looks back on the world he left behind over 35 years ago and the relationship he's maintained with it from afar. 
I grew up in Nace, County Kildare. I went to school there. I didn't really think about myself as having any kind of a remarkable life. It was just a very normal existence. My mother was a homemaker. She also wrote poetry and she wrote short stories that were published. My father was a dentist. You know, I'm not the immigrant story of someone who came from a very poor background. I felt I was very lucky in some ways to, to come from such a good family. I remember growing up, I would have odd jobs. I worked in the car dealership trying to sell houses at one point. That didn't go so well. I worked in the post office. I just got all kinds of jobs that you'd get in the summer. And I think I even worked at McDonald's at one point, just doing the normal things that you do as a kid. And a message now from our friends at the Celtic Irish American Academy in Galway City. Celtic Irish American Academy is a two-week summer program that takes place in Salt Hill, Galway each July. High school students from a variety of states have attended our last four programs. It helps them to gain a deep appreciation of their Irish culture and heritage and also to become more globally aware young citizens. Students stay with host families in the seaside village, attend classes in St. Davis College and enjoy a variety of traditional activities and excursions. My name is Brian Fagg, Director of the Academy. If you are interested in your children or grandchildren attending, please contact us through our website. And that website is CelticIrishAmericanAcademy.com. And now, back to our story. Ireland today is so transformed in such an amazing and great way that it's hardly recognizable from when I was living there. When I left in 1985, it was a pretty much a closed society, and it was not very tolerant. We had that episode, and I can't really remember it exactly, but there was a young girl who gave birth in a cemetery, and she died, and the poor girl. And it just shocked people that somebody would do that. And, uh, you know, it just felt... Uh, it just didn't feel like a very welcoming place. In January 1985, a 15-year-old girl, Anne Lovett, fearful of admitting to being pregnant, gave birth alone in a religious grotto in Granard in rural County Longford. Both she and her baby son died, and led, in spite of an attempted cover-up by the locals, to a national and international outcry that finally forced the Irish nation to confront its definitions of sin and redemption and hastened the inevitable end to a cruel Catholic theocracy in Ireland. For me, having had that experience when I was 19, coming here to New York, my eyes were really open to all different kinds of things. Sean refers here to a summer he spent in New York in 1980 on a J-1 student visa, which for many Irish in recent decades has been their only American experience. And so Ireland didn't really feel very welcoming. Today, it's, it's quite amazing. It's much more diverse and hopefully more welcoming. I think it is. It's over 30 years since I left Ireland. And so I know as much about Ireland as a tourist going there. You know, I don't really feel that I have a good sense for how Ireland is today, but it seems to be a much better place. Sean is one of three siblings. His sister Lorraine is a retired civil servant and now works as an environmental consultant and is married to a well-known Irish journalist and TV reporter, Leo Enright. They have one son, Robert. Sean's brother, Peter, is an accountant in London with two daughters, one of whom, Kate, is displaying the same disruptive good-trouble behaviour of her accomplished uncle in the States. She's running for 
office in Manchester for the Green Party. Uh, yeah, she's very, very committed to improving things in the climate crisis. It's exciting watching the next generation come on and seeing the passion and, and the excitement that they have for change. And where was Sean's spot in the family roster? I was the middle child. You know, they talk about the middle child as the negotiator. So I've always felt that maybe that it was a good thing for me. And in terms of my career path and a lot of things I've done in terms of like how to figure out how to get a compromise between two people. So maybe there is something to this middle child syndrome, you know. Sean mentioned his wife. Let's learn more about her and the great team they make. I met Laura, uh, my wife, at a Spanish class. The two of us were taking Spanish lessons. We got married about 20 years ago. Uh, I should know the exact year, but I can't remember right now. But it's about 20 years, and who's counting? (laughs) So Laura was working in the business world when I met her, but she really wasn't happy doing that, and she really wanted to open up her own place, her own cafe. So she did that. She Right after we got married, she quit her job and spent a couple of years looking around for a place to open. And then in 2005, she opened up a place called Clandestino, uh, which is a bar on the Lower East Side on Canal Street and Essex. And it's become a very successful uh, bar, and it's been very, you know, a great clientele and just very good community right right around. And it's been a really, really nice experience for us because I've been helping her out over the years in the bar. And you get to know so many people who live in the neighborhood. And it's lovely walking around the street, you meet your neighbors. And so it really does make the city feel very small and very intimate. The bar is, it's hard to describe it. It's really just a sort of local neighborhood bar, but it's just very friendly and very, very professional. And I think Laura and is very proud of it and very proud of what she has been able to do there. So she's run the bar for 15 years and then with the pandemic last year, I think she was ready to end the business. It was just extraordinarily stressful, but she decided to pass it on to uh, one of our good friends who works in the bar, Jeffrey Simon, and we're sort of family with uh, Jeffrey and his kids. He's taking over the bar now and he's doing a great job and We're still sort of involved in it a little bit in helping out and doing things, but I'm very happy and I think Laura is very happy that the bar is continuing to survive and thrive. The pandemic was difficult, obviously, to watch the impact on your customers and your staff and most particularly the staff, many of whom left uh, New York because they had no choice. They couldn't afford to stay here and to pay their apartments. And so there was a big diaspora from New York for people who work in the arts. But a lot of the people who work in the arts, they supplement their income by working in the restaurant business. And so those people have left. A lot of them, young people, have left the city. And it's unclear to me if you know, a lot of them are coming back. They've just gone to other places. And so I think that's a great loss for New York, You know, the vibrancy and the energy. If you really have a dream and you want to be in the arts and you're willing to work in a bar or a restaurant to get you there, then a lot of people's hopes have been dashed, I think, over the last year by realizing that they just economically can't hack it. 
Yeah, Laura's from France, Paris, and that's great because, you know, when we go on vacation, you know, we have a choice between going to Ireland and France. Well, the food is a little better in France, and the weather is better over there. Often we go to France, and then the, my Irish contingent jump on the bandwagon, and they come over and visit us in Normandy, where our father has a place. And, you know, people in France don't think that the weather in Normandy is very nice, but if you're from Ireland... The weather in Normandy is fantastic. You know, it's just a little bit better than the southeast of Ireland and, you know, a little bit warmer. But you get the rain and the sun. It's not sunny all day, but that would be boring, you know, if it was sunny every day. So I love it. And I'm glad that so few French people think it's great because it doesn't really attract very many tourists. Now I'm like 60 years old and, you know, only one life to live. And so I want to go and with Lord to explore some places around the world and, and travel a bit more. So we're hoping to do that maybe next year when things open up a bit. I absolutely did enjoy, and I do enjoy Clandestino, and I think it's a very, very successful business. We've got a great clientele. We've got some really interesting people and writers, artists and philosophers. Probably a lot of philosophers, if you know what I mean. We have a lot of really interesting people. It tends to attract a little bit older people. But, you know, I'm, I'm 60 years old now and I think the music is too loud anyway, you know. So, <laughs> but it's, it's good to be able to pass it on to another generation and to watch them have fun with it and enjoy it. It's not really a business for somebody in their 60s. You know, it's really a young person's business, but it's beautiful, you know, to watch it and to see, uh, you know, young people enjoying it and respecting, you know, the value of the space, you know. Even to this day, and I invite you and your listeners to come down and enjoy a pint, excellent pint of Guinness, by the way, at Clandestino, so. Thank God. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> I got a couple of gigs playing piano in restaurants. I used to play in Nico's restaurant uh, on Dame Street. So I loved doing that. You know, that kept me out of the bars, I guess. I had this sort of dream at the back of my mind that maybe I'd come to New York and I could get a job playing the piano, but wow. When I came over here, the talent in New York is just off the charts. Even though I was okay in Dublin, there was no way I could do it here. There was actually a piano at one point at Clandestino, but we took it out because people would play it. And sometimes people would try to play it and they didn't really know how to play and it just became annoying. So we got rid of the piano. Thanks for listening to Centerpiece NY with Paul Finnegan, your presenter and producer. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can leave a review for us there, or a rating, we'd appreciate that. Leave a message for us at our new and improved website, centerpieceny.com. That's C-E-N-T-E-R-P-I-E-C-E-N-Y dot com. Our conversation with Sean Benson took place on April 29th, 2021 in the library of the New York Irish Centre in Queens. Everyone in the room was fully vaccinated. Yay! No politicians were harmed in the making of this podcast.